You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tamarcus Raglan. I'm the young adult minister here at Citizens Church. Um, And it is, uh, as always, such a a pleasure and an honor to be able to open God's word uh, with you. Um, Also, if this is your first time here or if you're um, watching at home online, uh, we're so glad that you are with us as well. Um, Over the past few weeks, uh, if you've been here, we've been uh, teaching through our doctrinal beliefs, um, which can be found on our website. Um, And we're continuing in that series last week. Uh, Jamin uh, got to uh, bring the word for us and wax eloquently about um, human dignity and us being created in the Imago Dei and what does that mean for our humanity and just the the beauty of that and right chocolate and butterflies and all this good stuff. Um, And then he tasked me to teach about what we believe about sin. So um, I love you too and buckle up. Here we go. A crucial part of my story, uh, those that know me uh, know that this is um, pivotal in my life. Um, I was, uh, as a kid in sixth grade, um, pretty athletic. I was pretty healthy. I was, you know, playing football, basketball, running track, keeping my my family busy at all times. And, um, but one day, I got really, really sick, right? I was at school. Um, I was walking from one class to another, and I just felt this immense pain in my chest. Um, dropped my books, stumbled a bit, and it, it wouldn't go away. And not long after that, my mom was coming up to the school, picking me up, taking me to the doctor, and little did I know this was the beginning of a long journey of trying to figure out what was going on with me, right? Um, I had these, uh, all these scans that had to take place, getting CAT scans, going to see different uh, doctors and specialists, and nobody could tell me what was wrong. Right? But the, the symptoms continued. Right? I had a pain in my chest, and I didn't know why. Um, I was having these weird night sweats, waking up shivering in pools of my own sweat, and I didn't know why. Um, I was chronically fatigued. I was tired all the time, and I didn't know why. And um, it, just, it was one of the most miserable seasons that I can remember in my life. And if you've ever been in a situation like that before, right, you know, like next to being sick itself and all of the symptoms that are coming up, the only thing worse than experiencing the symptoms is not knowing what's wrong, right? To go to a doctor and have them look at you face, the guy that studied for years and for hours to be able to diagnose and for them to be able to say, like, I'm not sure what's happening, right? Sin is a similar kind of sickness. Right, left to our own devices, at best, we can try to address the symptoms, right? Because the symptoms are easy to spot, right? It's the, the chaos that we see on the news, right? It's the, the twisted desires and motives that we have in our heart or the, the institutions and systems that we create that are corrupt, so much so that we have to create new institutions and new systems to try to curb their corruption, right? Or maybe it's even more personal than that. Right, it's the uh, harsh and inconsiderate words that we say to one another. Right, it's our gluttony, our pride, our lustful thoughts. And the symptoms are endless and they're everywhere, right? And without a proper diagnosis, the deep healing and restoration that we need 
on the inside just seems further and further away, but the symptoms keep arising. And we, we feel this and know this to be true, right? Like if you did a, just a survey, if you found 100 people and asked them uh, if something was wrong with the world, if they thought that something was wrong with humanity, 100% of them would say yes, right? Everyone knows that something is wrong. But you'd get 100 different answers of what's wrong, right? There's an, we all agree that something's wrong, but not everybody agrees about what's wrong. And that's difficult, right? We, we can't just uh, guess at it, right? When I, was, when I was feeling all of those symptoms, right, there a lot of friends and families and doctors had ideas and guesses about what was wrong, but guesses aren't good when you're trying to find a cure, right? You need answers. Um, likewise, with sin, we can't just guess at it. We need answers. And this is where the doctrine of sin really helps us, right? It helps us uh, peel back the layers of the symptoms to be able to get to the core of what's actually wrong with us in the world that we live in. Um, Because we don't want to guess at it, and we don't have to guess at it. Uh, We actually can get answers, and we want those answers to be from God's word, amen? Um, So as you turn with me to Genesis 3, 1 through 7, as my sister just read, um, there's a a number of ways that we could approach the the doctrine of sin, right? That is a a broad uh, scope. And I just want to narrow it down to a couple things that we're going to narrow in on this morning. in two parts, I want to talk about right, what's, what's at the root of what's wrong with the world. Right? We're going to identify two roots that really uh, kind of uh, capture what's ultimately wrong with us in the world we live in. And then secondly, I want to uh, answer the question, what's at stake if we're wrong about what's wrong? Like if we misdiagnose what's wrong with the world and ourselves, what, what do we miss out on? So look with me at uh, Genesis 3, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it again. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you won't die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate it. And then she gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. And their eyes were open. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. See, there's a couple things that we see in the, the opening pages of the Bible that take us to the root of what's wrong with everything, right? The first root that we find at the center of our first parent's sin is infidelity, right? There's a lot that happened in the fall in that scene. But one of the most prevalent images that the Bible uses to describe exactly what was taking place in that moment and what has continued to take place in every human heart since then is this idea of infidelity, right? This picture of unfaithfulness um, in, a, in a marital covenant. See, marriage, right, as we know in the Bible, right, is a microcosm, right, is a picture of the covenantal nature of God's relationship with his people, right? That there was supposed to be this covenant between us and him, 
And unfortunately, human history has proven that we um, have failed to be faithful to that covenant time and time again. In fact, right, we see this language often used over and over again in the prophets and in the New Testament describing um, our sin and our rejection of God in terms of this, uh, right, this marital uh, fissure between us and him. In Isaiah 121, it says, the faithful town, right, what was supposed to be the faithful town, says, what an adulteress she has become. She was once full of justice. Righteousness once dwelt in her, but now murders. You see what Isaiah's doing, right? Do you see the, the fruit of sin, right? That's the obvious part, right? It's full of injustice. It was supposed to be righteousness, but it's full of unrighteousness. It was supposed to be peace, but it's full of murders, right? We see that. What's at the root of that? Isaiah says, it's infidelity, right? It's unfaithfulness. James 4, 4 through 5 says the same thing. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? He made Right, the very life that we have belongs to him. You remember the illustration I gave a couple weeks ago about the, the groom with the wandering eye, right? Like his bride's walking down the aisle and he's making faces with the, the maid of honor, right? You know what none of us thought when I said that? Well, what's the big deal, right? Like, I don't see why the, the bride would be jealous about something like that, right? Like, no, like there was this the collective like disgust. They're like, no, like that wasn't, he didn't just make a poor decision, right? It was wrong. Right, that, that look that he gave the maid of honor, right, that honor and the love and admiration that that look represented belonged to somebody. It belonged to his bride, right? That's what the whole ceremony they were in was supposed to be about, right? They were making this covenant between one another that that kind of look and all that it represented would solely be reserved for her and her alone. And he gave it to the maid of honor. And that's, that's the problem with sin, right? It's this infidelity. You know, as a young adult minister, and formerly I was a, a youth minister, um, one of the, the difficult things that I've had to counsel a number of people through, either in the midst of it um, or after the fact, is, you know, them dealing with the, the reality of adultery in their families, right, between their mom and dad. Either mom cheats on dad or, or vice versa. And likewise, in that room, what I, what I never got with any of those individuals or, or, or friends that I've sat with, none of them ever said, right, like, it's not that big of a deal. I don't know why mom's so upset. I don't know why dad's so upset, right? Not, we know that. Why? Because adultery is, is destructive. It tears relationships apart. And it hurts the people around us, right? Similarly, our sin in this act of adultery, it, it breaks the heart of God. And this, was, this is what the serpent was after. He wasn't just trying to get them to eat a piece of fruit, right? He was going directly for their relationship with God. That's why his first words, right? Did God really say, are you really going to trust that guy, right? The woman responds, right? He said we could have all of the other trees except for this one or we'll die. And he says, no, you won't. What's he saying, right? God's lying to you. God's not trustworthy. You're not going to die. He just knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like him, right? 
there was a kind of trust and a kind of love and a kind of honor that was supposed to be reserved for God and God alone. And Adam and Eve gave it to the serpent. And ever since mankind has been given that love and that trust to any and everything except God. Timothy Keller describes um, our sin um, in, that, in that manner this way, that what was happening in that scene, what was the, the serpent really saying? It's going to be on the screen. He says, here's what Satan is saying. You can't trust God. Right? You can't trust the love of God. You're alone in the world, so you have to take your life into your own hands. Listen at this part. If you obey him thoroughly, you'll never be happy. That's the lie that has passed through every human heart. If you obey him thoroughly, you'll never be happy. God can't be trusted. He doesn't know what's best and he doesn't give what's best. So you have to secure that for yourself. Right. And you know what happens when we do that? When we try to secure the riches of God apart from relationship with God. Right. We end up just like the prodigal son. Right. Running away from the father into a lifeless place. Right? Giving more than we receive and causing destruction on everything and everyone around us, including ourselves, and most importantly, against the heart of God. Right? Our sin is infidelity before a holy God, rejecting relationship with him. It is at the root of all of our sin, grasping for life and for love in any and every other place except from where life is truly found and from the God of love himself. That's the first root. It's the second root. When Adam and Eve were deceived by the serpent, they not only committed adultery um, against the God of the universe, but they also committed an act of treason. Right? They rejected a relationship with God, but they also rejected the reign of God in their lives. Right, similar to that covenantal marriage relationship in the scriptures, um, there's another way that the Bible describes what our sin um, has done and how it's broken our relationship with God, and it's uh, penal in nature, right? It's, it's law-breaking, right? John 3, 4 says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. Romans 6, 23, the first half says, right, the wages of sin is death, right? Our sin right, garners a kind of punishment the same way we're um, dealt a punishment maybe in a, in a courtroom. Colossians 1.21 says, at a time we were all alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, right? Alienated, this, this idea of being banished, right, from the kingdom, um, being set apart from God's presence, hostile in mind against that kingdom and engaged in evil deeds. Right, so here we are at Citizens Church, right? Why do we call our church citizens, right? Or in our tagline, right? All people, one kingdom. Where does this language come from? It comes from the Bible, right? And part of what we believe, right, is that as we follow King Jesus, right, we belong to his kingdom. That with perfect love and sovereignty, he rules over all creation and all glory and honor is due him because it all belongs to him and it's for him. We belong to a kingdom, and that kingdom has a king, and his name is Jesus. And sin is in direct opposition with the king and his kingdom. See, often what we would like to believe about our sin, right, when we think about maybe like the little white lies, right, especially, you know, small sins, quote unquote, right, is they're not like 
actively against God, right? They're, they're neutral. Like maybe for sure, they don't please God. We're not getting any extra brownie points when we do it, but we're not like against them, right? We're not like hurting other people, especially when we're doing stuff in private, right? Like that's just, that's just between us. We're not hurting anybody. We're not hurting him. And the only problem with thinking about sin that way is that the Bible doesn't talk about sin like that, right? That it's not something that happens in a vacuum, right? Look at what um, the, the, the way Romans describes, right? If you look at Romans 6, it's an either or, right? Either you are presenting yourself to lawlessness or you are presenting yourself to righteousness. There's no in between, right? Even in, in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3, right, it portrays our actions as being in step with another kingdom, right? The kingdom of darkness. Look at what what Paul says here. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, right? Not the kingdom. Following the prince of the power of the air, not God. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath, not children of light, all like the rest of mankind. You see, right? Like when we sin, we aren't doing so in a vacuum, right? God's kingdom has a real enemy who's trying to overthrow it. And when we sin, we work in cooperation with that kingdom, opposing God and his kingdom, right? Like when we lie, Right? It's not, there's no such thing as a little white lie. When we lie, we join forces with the father of lies. Right? When we steal, we join forces with the one who came only to steal, kill, and destroy. Right? When we covet and envy, right, we bear the likeness of the one who coveted the throne and was cast out of God's presence. Right? Whenever we dabble in sin, Right? Whenever we join things that God meant to be separated and we separate and sever the things that God meant to be joined and we twist the things that were supposed to be straight and pervert what was supposed to be pure, right? we are dismantling the peace and the shalom that God meant to be in his world in Genesis 1 and 2. Right? We, are, we are waging war against the prince of peace and joining forces with the prince of the power of the air. You see, the serpent didn't just deceive Adam and Eve away from the light. That wasn't the only movement, right? No, he was recruiting them to be members of the darkness, right? We are either on one team or the other. R.C. Sproul describes sin um, with this kind of language. He calls it cosmic treason. And here's a, a quote of him describing what he means by that. It's also on the screen. It says, sin is cosmic treason. And what I meant by that statement was that even the slightest sin that a creature commits against his creator, does violence to the creator's holiness, his glory, and his righteousness. Every sin, no matter how seemingly insignificant, is an act of rebellion against the sovereign God who reigns and rules over all of us. And as such, is an act of treason against the cosmic king. Hear me, right? This is, this is why the, the punishment of sin is so severe. Right? It's not the, the size of the sin like we like to think about it. Right? It's the size of the one that we've sinned against. Right? And we get this right in just like normal, like earthly terms. Right? So for example, if I, or if you were to send, you know, if you were to threaten me, right, threaten my life. Right? So later this week, you send an email, you're like, hey, Tamarcus, the sermon was terrible. It made me so mad. Next time I see you, it's just, 
you're done, right? Sin, bang. It's like, whoa. It's like, that's a lot. First thing I'm thinking is like, man, how did they misspell Jamin so bad that it came to me? Like, um, and then, no, like, the worst, what the worst case scenario for you is you just don't see me for a while, right? Like, I send an email to the elders, and I'm like, I need an emergency sabbatical. Somebody's out to get me. That's like, that's worst case scenario if you threaten me, right? What if you threaten somebody, like a random guy in traffic, right? Maybe you're getting a little altercation, you honk horns, you send an unholy wave, they send one, right? Like, whatever. That's like the worst, worst case scenario. Little bit higher stakes, right? What happens if you threaten a coworker or a boss? A little bit more. Get reported to HR, you get written up. Worst case, you might lose your job, right? What happens if you threaten the president of the United States? You're going, you go to prison, right? Like that's it's treason, can't do that, right? Uh, you, are, you are an enemy of him and the country. Why? You did the same thing in every instance. Why did the punishment raise? His seat carries more weight, right? We see that in our, in our world. When we sin, right, while on, on earthly terms, right, threatening me and threatening the president, we weigh differently. Before God, both of us are creatures created in his image who have dignity and value. Both are an assault against his holiness. And so because God has the ultimate seat, that sin merits ultimate punishment before him. Right? It's not the size of our sin, right? it's the size of the one we've sinned against. And so Adam and Eve didn't just eat a piece of fruit. Right? They committed a crime against the God of the universe. And this is what the serpent wanted. Right? This is what he convinced them of. He says, God just knows that the day you eat of it, right, that you'll be like him. You'll rival him. He doesn't want that. Right? What is the serpent saying? Right? God doesn't want you to be great. Right? He's trying to hold you back. Right? If, you, if you obey him, right, like... like um, like uh, Timothy Keller said, you'll, you'll never be happy. You'll never truly be all that you could be. And so what do they do? They eat the fruit. But here's the problem, right? They were already like God. God created them in his image. That was what they were meant to be. And in being deceived by the serpent, right, trying to be more than they were created to be, they became so much less. Right? They chose a godless garden, and they got a gardenless life. They were banished from God's presence. They were pushed aside, right? They, they, they lost everything. Why? Sin is treason and the punishment is banishment from the presence of God. It's death. These are the, the two roots of sin, right? If we want to get to the bottom of sin, past the symptoms of, that we see, like what's at the root of our sin, it's infidelity and treason against the holy God. What's at stake if we miss that, right? Like if we, if we try to get a diagnosis about what's going wrong in the world and we don't land here, we land somewhere else, uh, we get something else, we don't have a, a proper a view of sin and its effect in our life, what's at stake? Um, a few things. One, our repentance becomes really thin, right? Repentance is really hard if we don't actually know what we're turning from. Like I remember, I, for the longest, I would read Psalm 51, and I used to wonder, how could David say, like, Lord, against you and you alone, I've sinned? Like, I used to think, like, surely Bathsheba would have something to say about that, right? Or maybe Uriah, who he, you know, had murdered. But over time, what I realized was David wasn't, he wasn't minimizing his sin, 
Right? He, wasn't, he wasn't running from what he actually had done. He was getting to the root of it. Right? He sinned against God and God alone. It was because of his infidelity and treason against God beginning in his heart that led him to act out the way that he did. It was a failure here before it became a failure here. Does that make sense? Right? In, order to, in order to truly repent at the heart of the matter, we have to get to the heart of the matter. So if we miss that, right, we, we miss an opportunity to truly repent. Our repentance becomes thin. The other thing that happens is we miss humility. Right? The world is broken from top to bottom, all the way to the middle. Right? And every fabric of creation right, is affected by that brokenness and the sin of mankind. Paul says it, right? he says all of creation groans because of sin and the brokenness that's in the world. It's a massive scale, right? It's much greater than any one of us could possibly fix on our own, right? And this is part of the, the effects of total depravity, right? That's a big theological phrase that we use to describe how sin has affected every fabric, right? Not only of creation, but of us, right? Mind, body, affections, soul, right? Every part of the human person is touched by sin in some way. You know what that ought to do? That ought to make us humble, right? Like when we're faced with the brokenness and the destruction that's in the world, right? Rather than, than looking at it and saying, you know what, if everybody would just, you know, do blank, then it'd just be a better place. Or if everybody just, you know, thought like this, then it'd just be better, right? Instead of, instead of being quick to, to judge and quick to offer, you know, thin fixes for what's wrong with the world, we, we'd be quicker to weep over the brokenness, right? That we'd be quicker to move into to prayer for what's broken, to lament, to cry out to God that he would move because what's, what's happening here is so much bigger than what any one of us or all of us could do on our own. We need him, right? It ought to, it ought to humble us in the face of brokenness. It also should make us more compassionate, right? Along the same lines, right? We should be compassionate towards other people. If we, if we have a proper view of sin, we should realize that all of us are caught up in the same plight, right? All of us um, are affected by sin and all of us perpetuate sin in the world. And that means we all play a part in the game, right? Remember at the beginning of Isaiah when he's right, standing before God, right? He doesn't, he doesn't stand before God and see sin for what it is and go, God, I'm so glad you're here. These like people that you've got me surrounded with are awful. Like you should, right? Like he, no, what does he do? He's, he is wrecked by his own sin first and foremost. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And I am of a people of unclean lips. All of us together have gone astray, right? It ought to, it ought to give us compassion for one another because we ought to be able to identify with one another. I get, I get the brokenness. I get the pain. I see how someone could get. Like, I'm not surprised by the sin in others because I know the sin in me, right? But here's this, right? Um, when I was finally able to, to find somebody who could uh, identify what was wrong with me when I was in the sixth grade, um, they were able to, to diagnose, right? I had a really rare case of tuberculosis. Um, I don't remember all the details around it. I didn't really understand all of the details then. All I knew was that finally somebody knew what was wrong and they knew how to fix it, right? I needed to have surgery pretty quickly and I had to take some medication for a number of months and then they'd have to like reassess to make sure all of that worked. And imagine once I finally get that from the doctor after all these right, uh, months of not knowing what's wrong and then finally getting the answer, 
looking at the doctor and saying, I'm good. I'm just going to take my chances with it. Thank you, though. Right? Like, no. No one, no one, you don't do that, right? It was, it was because of the, the, the pain and the difficulty of the symptoms, the, the pain and the reality of the diagnosis that moved me to accept the cure for the diagnosis, right? If you don't leave with anything else this morning, please, please hear this piece. This is why a proper view of sin, this is why we would take such time to talk about something like sin this morning. Because if you don't have a view of sin like the Bible gives, right? If you don't have uh, a sin-sized problem, if you don't see the world as having a sin-sized problem, you'll never land on a cross-sized solution. If we don't see sin the way the Bible sees sin as the problem, there's no need for the cross. Right? Like if you just, if you just need to make better decisions, like that there's book you can read up on that, there's books for that, you can get a life coach, they can, you know, walk you through finances, relationships. If you need saving, though, there's only one name by which anyone could have hope to be saved. And it's Jesus, right? I quoted a guy a couple weeks ago, Cornelius Plantinga Jr., wrote a whole book about sin. Told you what he said at the end. This is what he said at the beginning about why he would endeavor to write a book about sin. It's so good. He says, to ignore, to euphemize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. We need to understand sin so we understand our need for God. That is, that is the value of understanding and seeing it. Right? The gospel doesn't make sense if you don't understand sin. Right? This is why Jesus told the Pharisees in the gospel, he says, the well don't need a physician. Right. I have come to save sinners. Right. If you if you don't see yourself as a sinner, you're going to miss the beauty and the need for the cure. Right. We're going to miss how how God has masterfully through the cross unwoven all of the lies of Satan in the garden. Right? Like the serpent told us that God can't be trusted. How do we know God can be trusted? How do we know he's actually after our good? It says he made him who knew no sin, the one person who actually did it right, the one person who never committed adultery against God, the one person who never committed treason against God, who actually lived a righteous life. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that you could be the righteousness of God. Serpent said, God doesn't give what's best. He's holding back from you. He just doesn't want you to be great. Right. How did God rebuttal? How did he refute God, uh, the serpent's lie that he doesn't give what's best. He gave himself. Lord of lords, God of all creation, took on our adultery, took on our treason so that we might have life. Died the death of a criminal on a cross. You see, sin is an ugly reality, but when we get the diagnosis right, we have a great physician who can mend what is broken in us, right? In fact, John tells us, right, when we acknowledge our sin before him through confession, right, when we take it for what it is, look at how, look at how he undoes all of the serpent's lies. He says, God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He's faithful, right? He's the, he's the bridegroom who receives us despite our infidelity. He's faithful. 
He's just, right? He's not just willing to forgive us, right? He doesn't just remove the sentence in an unjust way. No, he is justified in forgiving us. Why? Because Christ took our punishment and atoned for us on the cross. He is faithful and he is just to forgive. He fixes this and then he can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I couldn't help but as I processed all of this, Um, This week, even thinking back, uh, being in the sixth grade and being sick and all of what that was, couldn't help but be reminded um, of a couple years prior when uh, I received another diagnosis. Um, I was sitting in a Sunday school classroom um, on Buckingham Road in Richardson, Texas, and a woman by the name of Gail Miller was explaining to me uh, my need for the gospel, uh, that I was a sinner, right? What that meant for me then was I remember stealing one of my friend's Pokemon cards uh, when he wasn't looking. And that, that seemed small, but, but what I knew in that moment was that, was that might have been a small act, but I did it against a big God, and I needed, I needed a lot of help. Um, and God met me in that place. Uh, my, my prayer and hope this morning, um, as we reflect on the realities of, of sin in our life and in our world, uh, that we wouldn't leave here... Um, with this feeling of condemnation. Um, but just like I met God in that, that Sunday school classroom, that maybe somebody in this room for the first time uh, could be met with the grace and the love of a God who in spite of our sin and in spite of how we've turned from him and in spite of how we've betrayed him has never stopped to pursue us, who has never stopped extending love and grace towards us and that we might receive the cure that maybe today we finally get the the diagnosis right and we accept the cure that the God of the universe has to extend to us. It's open to us. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are better to us than we deserve. I remember hearing a pastor say one time, the the scariest truth um, that any of us will ever have to reckon with in the Bible is that God is good and we are not. But Lord, a a beautiful truth that follows that, I remember a professor saying that though we are um, far more broken um, than we care to admit, um, the one who knows our brokenness the best loves us the most. Well, that's the, the, the paradox of the gospel, right? Is our, our sin has separated us from you. And so we want to try to hide from it. We want to try to deny it. We want to try to move from it. But in doing that, we miss the cure. The, the way that we actually get to move close again, the way that we actually get to uh, be invited back in is first we have to acknowledge, we have to acknowledge that we've stepped away, that we've, we've rejected you, Lord God. That we, it wasn't just the lie. It wasn't just um, the, the lust. It wasn't just um, the, the stealing. It wasn't just the anger, Lord God. It was, it was the infidelity and the treason that we committed against you. But Lord, as soon as we are willing and and able to admit those words before you, you are um, 
You're like the good father who saw the prodigal son from far away, who, who sprints towards him, embraced him, and clothed him with the finest robe and jewels. Because you never stopped loving your son, you never stopped loving your daughter. Lord God, would our, would our sin awaken us to the reality of the salvation that you extend, that we would turn from it at the root that we might be able to um, be received back into your arms, Lord God, and receive the grace that is abundant and open to us, the love that is abundant and open to us. Lord God, would you do that for us this morning as we continue to sing, as we worship, as we reflect on who you are and your goodness. Lord, that even as we take communion in just a moment, Lord God, that we are we are able to come to the table, not because we're worthy, but because the one who is truly worthy took our place on the cross that we deserve, that we might have life. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for your son. Thank you for your mercy and your grace. See your son, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.